Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So let's start with emerging markets. First, it was Turkey, then Argentina, now Brazil. There's some pain emerging in EM. And EM central bankers are asking the Fed for help. Indonesia's new central bank chief joined his counterpart in India in calling on the Federal Reserve to be more mindful of the global repercussions of policy tightening. Joining me to discuss is David Balin. I'm really pleased to say who joins us here in New York. City Private Bank Global Head of Investments. Good morning, David. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So another central bank hike, this one coming from Turkey, an EM is constantly responding now to pressures coming from elsewhere. Talk to me about the pain that EM could be about to go through. Well, let's talk about you know what's really um, happening in the sense that you've got um, the U.S. actually sort of sucking up capital because you had a uh, huge you know tax um, uh, overhaul in the United States, which has created both fiscal stimulus, it's created a larger deficit at the same time that the Fed is actually uh, um, selling securities back to the market, you know, and raising rates. So this is a sort of one, two, three punch for emerging market currency. So that's the what's what's taking place now. The emerging markets have you know, different stories. So if you take a look at Asian emerging markets, their currencies have done better. If you take a look at Latin America and Turkey, they've done worse. Uh, and in those circumstances, it really is the fact that uh, that they've got their own economic issues and growth issues that are taking place. So you know, there's a lot going on. They're not going to get much help from the Fed. The Fed is going to continue along its policy exactly as it intends to over the course of the next 18 months. So they're going to have to make an independent decision about what their rate should be. Uh, and that, and they're still going to be under currency pressure, in my mind, in, in, in even six or 12 months. Well, this, is what, this, this is what I was going to ask you about. Just looking at what Jay Powell has said very recently, in the last month, this was a month ago, almost to the day, this was Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Monetary stimulus by the Fed and other advanced economy central bankers played a relatively limited role in the surge of capital flows to emerging markets. There is good reason to think that the normalization of monetary policies in advanced economies should continue to prove manageable for EMs. What do you think of that statement from the chairman of the Federal Reserve? Um, it's a very, it's supposed to be a calming statement and indicating that everything will happen gradually. And in, in you know, on, in his defense, if you take a look at the speed with which the Fed is moving, given the unemployment rate in the United States and different debates about inflation, you could argue that the Fed is moving very deliberately and relatively slowly. However, if you were to look at that from the emerging markets perspective, you would sit there and say, my goodness, you can imagine that there could be two, four, six rate hikes from here, and that that's going to have a materially you know, negative impact on, on, on emerging market currencies. So, again, I think what he's saying is we're going to do this. Um, and he's not really holding their view to any quarter whatsoever. So if you're just tuning in, more pain than emerging markets in Brazil in the last couple of days. We've seen it in Argentina. We've seen it in Turkey. Turkey hiked interest rates at an emergency meeting just a couple of weeks ago. They've hiked interest rates again at the scheduled meeting today, taking rates up to 17.75%. A rally in the Turkish lira, taking dollar lira back through 450, 446.41 is how we're trading in the here and now. Tom Keane, lots going on in EM. Yeah, it's extraordinary news. I did not expect this today for a Thursday. N the, I, economist didn't, out, the economist didn't expect another hike from Turkey today yeah, either. And, and, you know, I'm working out right now a function, and I'll eventually get it done and get it out on Twitter, Bloomberg Radio. You'll see it first. But you take that one-week repo Turkey rate, it's like their Fed Fund's target rate, whatever, 17 and three-quarters percent, less 12% inflation. I think, John, the math, 
is that's a 5% real interest rate. David Balin has compared to real rates as they look west to Europe, or frankly, as they look south to more troubled economies. I mean, that is an unsustainable real rate for any economy. In general, that's right. Um, and certainly, if you take a look at it compared to to the you know the developed world, where you have you know you know zero, arguably negative rates uh, in terms of what you're earning, certainly across uh, across Europe, that's exactly right. Um, you know, Turkey is, is its own case, and I think we, you know, by focusing on it, you actually we have to look at the emerging markets as a whole. And and there, I think the picture is quite different. Um, you know, they didn't get the benefits of QE, and they're and they're going to have a little bit of pain as QE comes off. Uh, and so it's going to be at the end of the day for an investor to look at the actual economy and to look at the value of those stocks and to look at the the growth rate of earnings in those companies uh, and their ability, obviously, to handle uh, their their own foreign currency risk. And 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 in general, I have to say that that in contrast, you know, uh, we think that you know three quarters of the emerging market economies are actually going to be a, a decent place to put money um, uh, over the course of the next couple of years. So. I, I do agree that these are flashpoints. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, as an investor, I, I don't look upon them as bellwethers. Let's get to the three quarters. What are the three quarters? Yeah. And what's so, the quarter that you don't want to be in? Well, I mean, certainly uh, Turkey would be a good example of that, and 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 in my mind, Russia as well, uh, which is very, very, um, you know, never diversified, never diversified away from from oil. But if you were to look at, you know, basically all across uh, all across Asia, if you were to look at at Latin America as a whole, uh, if you were to look at the um, the sort of multinational companies operating there, if you were to look at you know, everything when it comes to mining, whether it comes to uh, uh, actual agricultural values, uh, companies. Yeah. These companies are, are, in some cases, very, very inexpensive uh, and quite healthy. Remember that they've had a chance to repair their balance sheets as well. It's not as if only U.S. companies or only European companies or only Asian companies have benefited. So we, when we look at individual baskets of companies and their ability to sort of get major shares of market, we think that they're quite quite uh, you know, cheaply priced. There is this hope that in LATAM, and let's take Brazil as one example, there will be this liberalization, they will move towards free markets, and there will be great investable opportunities. What we've seen in the last month with a country like Petrobras is ultimately when crude prices went up, when petrol prices, gas prices went up, the truckers went on strike, and the government lent on Petrobras to get rid of the CEO. The CEO CEO goes just like that. That's how quickly things move right. in emerging the stock markets. Down 20%, and the that's stock's exactly down twenty percent, right. right. and all of a sudden we have to rethink Brazil. Is Brazil going to be that bastion of free markets and capitalism with available investable opportunities? The last month, the lesson is maybe not. Maybe not. But but I think that you know I that's not how you can invest looking at the last month. And you also have to remember that they're in an election cycle now where they have the same type of political issue. They can choose a middle of the road candidate, far left, far right. Yep. All of it's still alive right now. Uh, polls are very fluid. The candidates themselves are not, you know, especially dynamic. And so, you know, you, you can't make the, the judgment. Our, our view on Brazil in terms of where it is in its economic recovery is that very, very early. You know, and that for us is very, very attractive. So you have to be willing to tolerate volatility in order to make these investments. And, and of course, you have to get paid for it at the end. David Balin, great to catch up with you. City Private Bank, Global Head of Investments. Elsa Lingnus with us with RBC Capital Markets, and she is a student of foreign exchange. And the concept, Elsa, <coughs> excuse me, is Barry Eichengreen, Ricardo Hausman, and Ugo Paniza, original sin. And the great fear and the original sin of Argentina, Brazil, and Turkey 
is you're not going to be able to go out to the debt markets because you're so troubled. How close are we to where these emerging market economies can't function in the global debt market? Well, Turkey's problem in particular is um, its overseas borrowing, um, particularly borrowing in U.S. dollars by the corporate sector. And I think, you know, the central bank is doing what it can to bring the situation under control. Um, Having come under a lot of political pressure earlier on in the year to keep rates low, um, I think the political leadership in Turkey has admitted and acknowledged that's really not working. Um, And so today's decision by the central bank, a larger than expected hike, um, is really throwing everything they have at the problem to try and stop the weakness in the lira. Can the, the tools of our textbooks and the tools of previous moments and even crisis, can they work today or is the world of EM changed? You know, a lot will depend on broader risk appetite. And what we've seen so far is global markets um, less willing to forgive policy mistakes. We've seen that in Argentina, we see that in Turkey. Um, but this is not an EM-led route where the good get punished along with the bad. Um, and Argentina went down this route of hiking rates substantially and somewhat stemmed the route there. Turkey's trying the same. Can it work? That's your question. Um, you know, it remains to be seen. I think the problem all of these central banks are going to face is that the Fed is going to be hiking rates, U.S. yields are going higher, um, and that's going to put more and more pressure over the longer term. Elsa, just to get to the central bank response from the Federal Reserve, we're seeing a plea for help um, from India, the central bank governor, in an op-ed in the Financial Times over the last week, the Indonesian central bank doing the same thing. This is Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell about a month ago. He's basically saying there is good reason to think that the normalisation of monetary policies in advanced economies should continue to prove manageable for EMs. Is this a Federal Reserve that's increasingly less sensitive to what is happening abroad? I think they've always been sensitive, let me put my words carefully, but they've never made it their their key focus. And I think that's fair enough. You know, Chairman Powell has enough on his plate worrying about managing the U.S. economy and uh, achieving his targets there without also worrying about the rest of the world, unless it feeds through um, to the outlook for the U.S. So we saw that a couple of years ago when, you know, capital was flowing out of China and people were very worried about the pressure on the renminbi. The central bank, the Fed did step back and it didn't hike rates. um, and, And that was seen as quite a rational thing to do. But if this is Turkey or Argentina or countries like Tom said, which, you know, have committed the original sin, I don't think it's really the Federal Reserve's place to, to sort it out for them. Also, I think you make a really good point, especially when these are the same countries that were complaining about relative currency strength um, about five, seven, eight years ago. And now they're complaining about completely the opposite. Also, just in terms of EM right now. Over the last few months, we've heard people say, well, these are all idiosyncratic, very unique stories local to Turkey. Another one's local to Argentina. We've got another one local to Brazil, local to India, local to Indonesia. We're starting to see it be more than just a couple of cracks, aren't we? I think we're seeing a couple of things. One is that currencies are doing what they're supposed to do, um, which is act as a shock absorber. You know, we've seen that in the case of Brazil, we've seen that in the case of Mexico, India, another good example. Turkey faces a different problem just because so much of the borrowing has been done in foreign currency. Um, And the second thing is that, more broadly speaking, we're getting into an environment where EM carry trades on a vol-adjusted basis no longer necessarily makes sense. You know, there's a lot of places now within G10 
um, that you can get a decent amount of carry with a lot less volatility. And I think more broadly speaking, investors are taking another look at G10 carry trades and thinking, actually, in relative terms, it doesn't look as bad. So what do you do opportunistically, given the interesting milieu we're in right now? There's still good trades out there. Um, we've been trading very tactically um, for some time now, you know, and so we'll have our longer term fundamental views. You know, we, we've been calling euro dollar, as you know, um, to end the year around 118. Um, now that's pretty much where we are. But of course, two months ago, that looked like a much more bearish euro dollar call. Um, but within that, I think you can find opportunistically um, trades that go the other way. So, for example, this week we're long EuroCAD. That's working very nicely. Um, I think there's a good opportunity next week um, to look for some sterling strength potentially around the, the June 12th vote. Obviously, sterling's been very hard hit in the last half hour or so, so we'll see how that right. picks out. Um, you know, there are good opportunities out there. You just have to be more tactical. What is your strategic dollar call? Forget about making money, you know. <laughs> Pharaoh and I are trying to make money to get to St. Petersburg for Italy versus the U.S. But um, forgetting, <laughs> forgetting about that, Elsa, what's the strategic call on dollar? I think you've got to be very careful um, about jumping onto the bearish dollar bandwagon. And I know we've discussed this together a number of times before, um, and I still stick to that view. I, I'm not saying that dollar is going to go up across the board against every single other currency. Um, but there are places where I think the dollar could strengthen materially, dollar yen, for example. Um, and there are other places where I think it pays to be a lot more cautious um, about getting too bearish on the dollar. You know, euro dollar, I just don't see 130 anytime soon. So I think your broader dollar call has to be look for the opportunities yeah. and don't get carried away with the dollar bearishness. I think um, we're going to the capital <clears throat> of foreign exchange, Tom, you and I. We're going to see Alsa in London because cable's rolling over again. Um, sterling at 133.84, down about two tenths of 1% on the session. Um, Alsa, Brexit politics. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it on this programme for very good reason. It's been going nowhere for a long time. <laughs> But sterling is starting to look painful over the last couple of months. Just give me your thoughts. An interesting picture. Um, you know, obviously, some live developments at the moment, speculation over uh, David Davis and whether he was threatening to resign. Um, I do think the vote next week will be really critical. Very interesting to see how the Commons will react to the Lord's Amendments. You know, more than anything, I think this is one where you've absolutely got to be tactical. Um, but there could be an opportunity to look for a bit of a sterling recovery next week. Now, Salinas, great to catch up with you. RBC Global Head of FX Strategy. We don't do Brexit very much, <clears> Tom. <throat> and I would say I'm happy about that because not much is being achieved between the United Kingdom well, and the rest of Europe. Yeah, I'll agree with the rest of Europe. But, but even the the day-to-day -day battles of the Conservative Party, the Tories in, in England. With each other. I'm sorry, it does get lost in translation. Oh, I mean, I read about it, folks, I'm trying, you know, seriously, Simon Kennedy and Flavia and the rest of them are doing a great job over there trying to explain it to me. But I, I just, I mean, David Davies is running the Brexit debate. Basically. He is... Upset with the Prime Minister. He is strong leave Europe. Yeah. Right? He wants to leave. And Mr. Johnson wants to leave. Yeah. What does Prime Minister May want? She's just got to try and please as many people as she possibly can, and clearly she can't do that. Tom, I just think for, for most investors worldwide, outside of the UK, 
they wake up in the morning yeah. and they're just like, tell me when I should I mean, care. And when Elsa says we get into a crucial point, I feel like we've been saying right. that for the last 18 months we get into a crucial I mean, point. I remember, the no I remember the day after Brexit, we knew about 10 p.m. the night of Brexit that it would pass, which was a shock. And I remember being with you and our, our London team in Watch, London. Watching the market open. Watching, and then, then you went to a Mayfair five-star dinner. That was and you and I not went me. to the McDonald's at Liverpool Station. And I remember this clearly. And, and, you know, I remember the shock in the streets, whether at the McDonald's at Liverpool can Station. We, can, we tell, or... can we tell the real story? <clears throat> can we tell the real story? You were on you for went, what, 18 you hours went, straight? You, I was on for 18 hours straight. <laughs> You went to go to the bow tie store. <clears throat> Where was it? Turnbull and Asser that you wanted a special bow tie? Yeah, McKinsey and, and I went and, over and to then, the bow tie And then store. someone spotted you and said, come for a drink. We went to Davidoff come, come Cigars. To, come to yeah. our Brexit party. Yeah. yeah. And you went for cigars yeah. and whiskey. And, and I you did 18 hours went to work and did 18 hours straight. So <laughs> less, like less than a Mayfair restaurant. That was you and I on the Brexit tour. <clears throat> you were in a restaurant with cigars. So okay. And I was... On air. I'll make it up to you. We'll go to the McDonald's Liverpool, <laughs> Liverpool Street. I can't wait. Okay. I can't wait. I can't wait to actually see you there. I'm going to run through some price action top <laughs> just quickly, just to get everyone up to speed this Thursday morning. John Farrell, this is really perfect with a Last 48 hours of debate about G7 and coming into Professor Keene. No relation, folks. Stephen K-E-E-N. Stephen Keene will be with us with Kingston uh, University. The President of the United States, four minutes ago. Isn't it ironic? Where did he get that? That that was... Um, Alanis Morissette. Al Alanis Morissette. As he heads to Canada. As he heads to Canada. <clears throat> Channeling Alanis. The tweet, isn't it ironic, question mark, Getting ready to go to the G7 in Canada to fight for our country on trade. Parentheses, we have the worst trade deals ever made. Close parentheses. Then off to Singapore to meet with North Korea and the nuclear problem. But back home, we still have the 13 angry Democrats pushing the witch hunt. So I guess this first tweet is an all-encompassing tweet. It is a good time maybe to speak on our fractured Western capitalism with Steve Keen, who's been a a student of labor, and of course, hearkening back to the work of Mr. Marx of 100 years ago. Professor Keene, the state of labor here and the professor, of, uh, the, um, the level of economic growth that we're seeing is a backdrop to G7. Which G7 country is doing best right now? <laughs> That's a tough question, Tom. Uh, I think in some ways it probably is the states, and largely because Trump's uh, you know, bull in a china shop uh, approach to economic policy has meant there's a huge government stimulus on its way into the economy, both through the tax cuts and uh, uh, increased levels of spending. So in that sense, I think that that's top, topping on top of the momentum that QE gave the economy. Very expensive momentum, I might add, but it yeah. still gave it to it for the last 10 years. And I think we're approaching probably a level where you're likely to finally start seeing wage rises coming through. But as I said earlier on surveillance with you, it's likely yeah. to spike. It won't be a gradual rise. But what's fascinating, Stephen, this goes to the heart of your study and your decades of work, is the wage increases going in any way to almost some of labor, or is it really defined to a gilded age, narrow pie of people? 
It's a guild, it's been, we're in a gilded age, definitely, and the, the real sign of a gilded age is the level of leverage the global economy has. And one side effect of that leverage, this is something which has only come out of my mathematical modelling of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis, is that that increase in leverage is actually paid for by the workers, even if they're doing no borrowing whatsoever. And what actually happens effectively is an income distribution effect where the, the capitalists end up with a, roughly the rate of profit that leads them to reach an average level of investment. And the increasing share going to bankers comes at the expense of workers getting a lower share. And at the moment, in some ways, I think probably the workers' share of income in America, possibly globally, uh, is the lowest it's been in the history of capitalism. So, Professor, big question. Can the president tackle the issue of the workers' share of overall income? and support global markets at the same time. And what I mean by that is, can you simultaneously have risk assets perform in global markets, stock markets, and at the same time, have more capital go to labour? Well, not you're hardly talking about sacrificing a lot. I mean, Labor's labor share used to be, you used to talk in terms of a sort of 70-30 labor share of income with 30, that 30% including both uh, industrial and financial capital. Uh, now it would be something in the order of 62, I think, something about that, maybe something above 65. So to get back to the previous levels is hardly going to be taking a lot off the uh, off the industrial and financial capital. But I don't think it'll even get that far. I think what's more likely to happen is once there is a, a set of wage rises coming through, the Federal Reserve will, will respond in typical neoclassical Pavlovian fashion, put up interest rates believing they're balancing the flows of the economy and completely ignoring the stock of debt private debt that's out there, and you'll see the private sector go back into deleveraging again, and we'll go from a short, sharp inflationary boom to higher interest rates, followed by another slump uh, as the private sector starts to cut its debt levels once more. Professor, tell me why the Federal Reserve hike in interest rates is the wrong idea then. Why, why should they stop? Well, they, they believe that interest rates can control the global national economy. And about 20 years ago, I argued to Australia's equivalent uh, inquiry into the financial sector, the Wallace Committee, that you simply couldn't control that uh, when you had massive levels of debt because it simply was too uh, blunt an instrument. It would always come in too late and too heavy. And uh, the same thing applies here. The, res central, the Reserve Bank, uh, all, all, all uh, central banks have three numbers in their heads. 2% is their desired rate of inflation, 3% is their desired rate of economic growth, and 4% is where they think their interest rate should be. And that is a world in which there's no uh, role yeah. whatsoever for private debt. So they, they'll, they'll get the 2, 3, 4 right, and they'll blow up the global economy. Steve Keen, in the time that we've got with you today, I want to step back and look at some of your work. And this goes back to Marxist theory and modern capitalism, which is a study of profitability. And I say this in homage to you and also to Megden Desai, of the London School of Economics. Is our profitability today a quality profitability or is it an engineered profitability? Good question, Tom. And I'd go over the engineered side of things because you were talking earlier in the show about the level of share buybacks that are occurring. That is a sign of a, a the, the management of industrial capitalism that doesn't think it has any better ideas than to hand the money back to the shareholders rather than actually investing it and innovating. So if you want to find the really a vibrant stage of American capitalism. It was the 40s to the 60s where there was dramatic levels of investment and nobody would even think of handing money back to shareholders except to dividends from successful new product launches. Uh, that said, we still have the outstanding characters, the, the, the billionaires like Musk and, and Bozos and so on, who are using their incredible fortunes for various quite off the, off the scale innovative investments. But as a whole, I think you can say it's a pretty moribund and engineered 
yeah. high level of capital. <clears throat> Let's read about the script here. Secretary Ross over with Becky Quick on CNBC right now. Um, saying that there will be an enforcement team installed at ZTE. This is a controversial tech story uh, in China. Uh, Mr. Ross says the U.S. and ZTE have reached an agreement. That in itself is headline-making. Steve Keen, what is your take on the new China commerce, I guess is how I would put it, their ability to do business? Is it business as usual for China, or are they going to take a new road that President Trump and others will have to adapt to? Well, they, won't, they certainly won't take the road that Trump wants them to follow. Uh, there's a long enough memory in Chinese political circles to say we're getting even for the opium wars and they're not about to let to America dictate them anything after that event you know, two centuries ago. Um, so I, I think what the new model in China is that they've gone past the stage where they can rely upon credit for the private sector as a driver of economic growth. That's what they've relied upon since yeah. 2010. What they're now doing, I think, is the Silk Road and all the major infrastructure projects as the driver of growth, because the last thing they can afford is to have rising unemployment amongst the industrial working class in China, because Chinese are much better at right. revolution than Americans are. Well, let's leave it there. Steve Keen, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, folks, whatever your beliefs on politics, I, I would suggest a careful study of Mr. Keen, Professor Keen, uh, would be uh, important. We saw Turkish lira come in earlier. Brazil announces extra foreign exchange intervention for the second time in three days. That's an official headline. Again, Brazil uh, raises FX intervention again. These are swap transactions as uh, Brazilian real gets out to a 391. Uh, certainly getting near that four level gets your attention. And uh, the major headline there is the activity two times in three days on Brazilian at real. Right now, um, Brazil, if my eyes don't fail me, 3.90 on Brazilian uh, real. He may not look at Brazilian real. He may not look at Turkish lira, but he does look at Dow 25,146 with futures up 65 in the Dow right now. Joining us, Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners. Doug, you have been what I would call a supple short, which is you know when to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. How have you done with a cautious view given the quality of this bull market, which seems to be tech, tech, tech? Um, I have basically of the view that the market is stretched. We're at the top end of where I see the trading range for 2018. Uh, I'm staying long, but I'm using trailing stops to short the market and basically for the purpose of immunizing my portfolio should the price momentum abruptly change, which I suspect could happen at any time. So... um, you know, we, we are in this extraordinary market, which is distorted by machines and algos and other price momentum-based strategies and products. And the, they result in these exaggerated short-term moves and present a market landscape in which buyers live higher and sellers live lower. Um, so it's a great environment for opportunistic and unimpassioned trading, I would say, Tom. Yeah. Not so great for the buy and hold crowd. How narrow is this market? I mean, Mr. Kramer uh, on the sure. Death Star came up with FANG. Is it an all FANG all the time market? Well, we're in a complicated <clears throat> market. You know, the investment mosaic is always complicated. It's not simple to explain or it's simple to respond to. Um, if you consider Tom, is Jonathan on the wire too? 
No, John's not here today. Okay. Pim is here. Uh, with, okay. Hey, Pim. Uh, with all the great news on the earnings front, the S&P is only up about 3% year-to-date, so we're seeing a contraction in valuations after last year's rather large three-multiple yeah. point rise in the S&P. So the complexion of the market seems to be changing. So this year, Main, Main Street is beating Wall Street. Last year, uh, Wall Street beat Main Street. Yeah. And um, the action in the last couple of, couple of days is particularly odd. The market seems to have no sector memory from day to day. Earlier in the week, tech spurted, then retail was on fire. Both were subdued yesterday, and financials took yeah. over on the upside. So it strikes me that the buying and swift rotation in the last couple of days is kind of yeah. panicky and a possible well, attempt by managers to catch up. Let's bring in Pim Fox in Florida with Doug Cass. They're about a Stanton home run away from each other. Pim? <laughs> well, and how about those Yankees? The real question of the day is whether the Yankees, Pim, will be going to the White House after they win the World Series. I'm just going to let that question float somewhere over the How, how about field. the Cubs, Tom? A yeah. walk-off grand slam by Hayward? Are you kidding me? It was, it was the, you always want the Cubs to participate. Mr. Fox. <laughs> well, Doug, <laughs> you know, that's why I was going with the, with the change in the rotation in, in where stocks are, are being traded. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could just step back and give us your thoughts about uh, passive versus active management right now and this widespread use of ETFs and do you have any idea what happens if there's a big downdraft in the market and people don't realize what they actually own in their ETFs? I'll be very direct. There is an underlying assumption by retail investors that the ETFs themselves will behave in a much more stable condition than their components. And I suspect just the opposite will, will happen. And we, I, we saw this a couple summers ago, I think it was 2016, where there were imbalances in ETFs uh, vis-a-vis the components of the ETF. So um, we're, we're in, a, in a very precarious time uh, in which markets are distorted by these machines and algos. Uh, and by, by uh, quant strategies like volatility trending and risk parity, but also importantly by leveraged and unleveraged passive, passive ETFs that you mentioned. This I mean, this is, uh, this is a, great, a great, great backdrop if you're an unemotional trader and an opportunistic trader who has no fear. Well, that's where I wanted to go next, is that the speed of market reaction can really catch people unawares and there's an opportunity to take advantage when people react are you surprised by the speed of market reaction to i mean you've written about this yes yes the discounting is extraordinarily efficient it happens within minutes or hours um and i think some measure it's um um it, it, it i think it's like if i can do an analog it's like it's like accepting Trump's rhetoric before he makes uh, a substantive policy decision. Market participants are beginning to understand that these um, exaggerated short-term moves are providing yeah. short-term opportunities. But then, you know, we have, a, we have an unusual backdrop. We have Deutsche Bank. We have an Italian debt crisis. We have a number of potential. Yeah. I, in a prior <clears throat> segment, three or four segments ago, maybe an hour and a half ago, Tom, you guys were talking, you were talking to a woman about 
the potential funding stress of U.S. dollar denominated. Elsa, Elsa Lingos. Na- yeah. Elsa, yeah, by yeah. now it was a great segment. Well, by non-U.S. equities, big yeah. problem. Doug Kess with Series Partners, and we don't talk to him about the equity markets. Possibly, we will talk to Doug Kess about the dreaded New York Yankees. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.